is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that you, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest, you, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did, he, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without, without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues, and greet in the marketplace, greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between, the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. All right. So, grammar questions for chapter 11. What requests... Do Jesus and the disciples make of him in the beginning of this chapter? Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Okay, good. And what according to Jesus will happen for the person who asks, seeks, and knocks? You know this one. Yes, ask and will be given. Okay, yes. Seek and you will find... And the door will be open. Good. By what means do some of the people say that Jesus is casting out demons? Mm-hmm. The prince of demons. According to verse 28, who is blessed? Those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay. What sign does Jesus promise to the evil generation he's speaking to? 
Sign of Jonah. Sign of Jonah. Um, and what astonished the Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner? Okay. Breaking protocols, Jesus. Um, whose blood will be charged to this generation? Sorry? Yes, yes, all of the Old Testament prophets who were persecuted and killed. What is the result of Jesus' direct and open attacks on the Pharisees and scribes? Right there at the end of the chapter. They, they, they seek to trap him or catch him in something he's saying. Okay, good. All right, so let's let's think through these a little bit. The logic questions. So, what what is the what point is Jesus making with the illustration about persistently badgering a friend for bread? What what is his point in saying this story? So was it that we must be persistent in our prayers and our requests to God? Okay. Okay. Anybody else have any thoughts on this? I don't disagree with that. I just want to know if there's more. I don't know, but I think it's interesting that he states that it's because of his impudence, not necessarily because he's his friend, but because of his impudence that he finally gives him what he asks for. Yes, an interesting question that I find interesting here is, is Jesus comparing... God to the friend that didn't want to get out of bed? Like, is that what he's doing? Like, or is there, I mean, would that be missing the point to make that kind of correlation? What What are we, any thoughts on that? I think it's like, it's kind of like a parable where there's one main point to okay. it. And it's not an allegory where this means this, because otherwise then God is a lazy God. He <laughs> doesn't want to help you and right. call, call me in the morning. Right. I mean, if you do that with the parables, you end up with all sorts of weird doctrines. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think the point is persistence. And so the comment about impudence is possible that we could be bold in our prayers. Okay. And approach God freely. And, and be persistent. Okay. Good. Good. Yes, I, I agree. Um, yeah, you start trying to correlate one-to-one ratios on every character in a... In a a parable or something like that, and you end up in some pretty weird places. But there seems to be in the parables this one main idea that we're looking for, right? That is being taught. And in this case, that we ought to be persistent in prayer um, and uh, and boldly ask God for what we need. Uh, okay. So, uh, and of course, related to that, he goes on to say. Worth, worth connecting that you know, with who asks their father for for you know an egg and gets a scorpion or or bread and gets a, a serpent you know, uh, God wants to give us good things. So I think you could come along and say obviously God is not the guy that's irritated that has to get out of bed. God has the the position of desire to give his children good things, but we should come before him boldly and ask for those things. Um, what does Jesus mean by the strong man illustration in verses 21 through 23? And how does this relate to the verses preceding it in 14 through 20? But this is what God is saying. But God is saying that the 
Does it have to do with the Pharisees being the strong man that's kind of protecting, but then Jesus comes and he's stronger? Is that what it's? Okay, maybe. Other thoughts? I'm going to read the section again because I, I, I found this a really intriguing area. So, <clears throat> starting back in verse uh, 14. Um, now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While the others, uh, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, um, so what, what, with all that in mind, how do we understand who, who is who's the strong man guarding the house? Uh, who is the stronger man that comes and takes away the armor? How, how do you see this? How do you understand this? So Susan has offered that maybe we've got the Pharisees as the strong man in the house, right? Are you just, I don't I'm just... <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but my, sure. my understanding is, is that the strong man is Satan. Okay. And that the stronger man is, is, is God, is Jesus. Okay. You know, and he's coming and he's overpowering Satan. You okay. see that with him driving out demons. Okay. Yeah, so, um, you know, Jesus raises the legitimate point. He says, if, if, if I'm doing this by Beelzebul, if I'm doing this by the prince of demons, right, then who do your sons, that is, Israelites, right, cast out demons by. Um, because they're, they're, you know, Jesus seems to be giving legitimacy to the fact that there have been exorcisms done by faithful Jewish believers, you know, as well. And so if, if the only way to get rid of demons is to be attaching yourself to, to Satan, then that would have to be true of them as well, right? But they don't think that. Um, and so he makes this point that, you know, if, if, if you know, if the same, the same side starts fighting inwardly, the whole kingdom's going to fall down. So yeah, I think I think you do have this picture that the strong man guarding the, his house is the devil, and, and God is overcoming him and, and casting him out, right? Um, and so then we go on to um, this next section, verses 24 through 26, and I, I ask this question, how should we understand Jesus' warning about the return of unclean spirits, and I think we should see these as very much connected. So how do we understand Jesus' warning about the return of unclean spirits? I kind of uh, looked at that as uh, the seed that fell in shallow soil. Okay. Might have come up strong, but didn't have the faith of the roots. So when he cleaned house, he might have cleaned up his life, but there's no root in faith or God. 
to keep things up. Where else have gone? So I think we could we could possibly look at this at least in two ways. One, I think we could look at it as an individual level thing. So, for instance, if Jesus has an actual person like he's talking about here, he's, he's cast a demon out of this person. Um, you know, if that person does not get their house in order with the Lord, right, they could be vulnerable to something much worse in the future because just by casting out a demon, it does not secure their salvation. They still have to trust in the Lord, right? Um, so you could look at it that way, but I think you could also look at this as a, as a larger warning for Israel. Here God has come to them and he's cleaning house, right? He's setting things in order, and he's, and he's saying that you, you have this opportunity right now to attach yourself in faithfulness to the Lord uh, as I'm cleaning things up in Israel. But if you don't, the latter state of you is going to be worse than the former. So I think that there is individual application in that sense, but I also think that there's a larger application, which is to say that this is Israel's opportunity to lash on to the Lord as he's near, drawn near them. But if they don't, woe to them right for what comes next, um, which you know you could attach this very much to. Um, I, you know, I've, been, I've been reading Eusebius with my students at uh, CSW recently, and... and um, we just went through him describing kind of from Josephus the, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD with the, the siege of Titus and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's just amazing to see how horrible that all was, right? And when you think about Jesus' proclamation, you know, pray that your flight's not in the winter, pray that you're not pregnant or nursing. Pray, you know, I mean, like, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm trying to read too much into this, but I, I feel like this this is kind of a, an early warning of that same kind of trouble that's coming to those who do not follow the Lord after Jesus has come. So, anyway, something to think about. All right, so how, uh, or what do both the men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South have in common, uh, and how does this continue a prominent theme in Luke? This is uh, section uh, the verses 29 through 32 is kind of the area we're looking at right here. What do they have in common, the, the men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South? How does this continue a theme? It says, both will rise up in judgment and condemn. Okay. Um, and honestly, just continuing the theme, it's just it's that uh, Christ has come and these people will be judged. Okay. Good. And there, there's a sense, too, in which uh, it seems like Luke is sort of laying out the fact that here are Gentiles that recognize the grace of God right. and the work of God, and they, they're acknowledging that, but here you are my people, and you don't even see this, and so they're right. going to stand up in judgment against you, you know, on that last day. And it seems like that theme you know, with the centurion and, yeah. and others through the book that sort of lays yeah. that out. Yeah, over and over again, Luke is emphasizing how God's grace is extended beyond the borders of, of Israel time and time again, and not just as Jesus comes, but, but God's been about that all the time. In fact, the Jews were supposed to be about extending the grace of God beyond their own borders, and they didn't always do that very well. Uh, I mean, Jonah being an excellent case in point. Uh, okay, good. 
in what way is Jesus comparable to Jonah, and then how is he greater? Assigned to the Ninevites, Jesus came as a sign to the people of Israel and to all people. Okay, and in what way is is Jesus like Jonah? What what's the relationship between those two? Well, they're both prophets. What else can we say? There's the connection also that Jonah was in the belly of the fish um, three days, three nights, and Jesus will die. Yeah. But he is resurrected, um, and it's it's a greater sign. He Jonah was only based practically dead. Correct. Jesus was actually dead. Okay. Yeah, and you know, I mean, connecting with what we were just talking about uh, about Jesus' warning of the return of unclean spirits and the destruction that can come to the person who, or people who do not get their house in order with the Lord, right? Um, Jonah came proclaiming destruction, right? Three days and Nineveh will be overthrown, right? Um, or maybe it's not three, three days? Is that what he says? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's going through the town, you know, yelling it out. And, but but it, similarly, I mean, Jesus is, um, is, I think, warning them that this is your moment of repentance. Otherwise, you will be wiped out. You will be destroyed. Um, so there's a lot to, to connect the two. Um, how does Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and scribes take a definite turn in this chapter, and why do you think this occurs? They definitely become a little more aggressive and more of a hostile um, attitude towards them. Who, who do you think antagonizes whom in this passage? Back to the Pharisee when he's asking why didn't he wash. Okay. And my, my guess is that his tone was not like, oh, I, I noticed you didn't wash. Why aren't you washing? And she was scolding yeah. him, like, don't you know this is what good Jews do? Uh-huh. Kind of thing? Yeah. Sort of poking him, poking the bear. So. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, it's at that point that Jesus doesn't really hold back. I, I, I submit to you, like, if you go back and read Luke, starting in Luke 1 all the way up to this point, you see Jesus being fairly reserved with his interaction with the Pharisees. Not that he doesn't have any criticism, or it's not obvious that he's kind of bringing something different to the people here, right? But it's at this point that he just kind of says, you know what? <laughs> Let me tell you what I think of, of your ministry, guys, you know? Um, yeah. So. So. Yeah. Um, and so. Why. Why do you think um, this happens right here? Do you have any thoughts on like why. Why this is a turning point or? Well, I mean, I think slowly, even though he hasn't been as direct throughout the whole book, you know, he's been slowly undercutting their authority in their eyes, you know, um, of pointing out. Um, some of their inconsistencies or their hypocrisy. And also, he's gaining a much bigger following every day and taking that away from the Pharisees to some extent. Mm -hmm. 
I like in verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Good job, Sherlock, right? You know, it's, uh, uh, it's kind of humorous to me almost. But so, so why does Jesus say that the blood of all the prophets will be charged to this generation? Why is it the case that they will be charged with all these past wrongs? They don't see who Jesus is. And the people who killed the prophets in the Old Testament, those prophets were pointing to Christ, or they were warning Israel to turn from their sinful ways, which would essentially point them towards the Messiah who was to come. So they're they're doing the same exact thing as the prophets did back then. And then you can almost say, had they been alive, they would have killed Jeremiah. They would have been yeah, this. They're going to go find the prophets that say peace, peace, as opposed to no, we have to repent. So they're no different than their ancestors and their attitudes and behavior. Yeah, all these, all these prophets pointed towards Christ, right? And so you could kind of look at it this way. So they have the Old Testament scriptures. They know the stories. They know what their forefathers did wrong with, with them, right? And here on the scene in front of the very faces is the Messiah that all of those prophets pointed to and died pointing to, right? And so here's the moment that they could say, Aha! Our fathers may have killed the prophets, but this is the one the prophets was pointing to, and we should accept him and know him and trust him and follow him. And yet by rejecting him, they are throwing their lot in with those who killed the prophets before Jesus, right? So they are liable. They are they are just as to blame as all of them are, um, and so I think it's it's interesting. Um, I'm trying to think, where's the verse here? Uh, it says you know from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and you know the the Jewish Old Testament was organized a little bit differently than ours were. Okay. That our books are, but the same same canon. Um, but Abel happens in what book? Genesis, right? And then Zechariah would be the the other bookend of their their organization of the Old Testament. So in other words, the entirety of the Old Testament witness towards Christ, right, is is on them to hold and to believe. Uh, and so if they reject Christ, they're not just rejecting Christ; they're rejecting all of God's word. The rejecting all that he has said about his son, um, and therefore they will be guilty of transgressing all of them. Okay, so <clears throat> rhetoric questions. We'll, we'll backtrack a little bit here. Um, what is the purpose of the Lord's Prayer? Uh, is it something simply to memorize and recite, or is it something more? And I just asked you to kind of explain your answer here. Um, so this is just a, a chance for you to kind of express your own thoughts, but we have obviously... Um, you know, there are churches who, who just recite the Lord's Prayer almost like an incantation, you know. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure we're on the same page, but that's not exactly the purpose of that. But nonetheless, what, what place does this have in the life of the church, in the life of the individual? How do we look at why did Jesus give us this prayer? What do you think? It's in Go ahead, Ben. I was just going to say to teach us how to pray. Okay, well, that's not the stated reason, right? Well, say it's in response to the request to teach us how to pray, so can it be used as a recited prayer? Definitely. Okay. But it's a guide. Okay. It's a, these are the things you should be praying for. Okay. 
And I, and I think, too, uh, if you look back at Matthew's example of this, it's done in the context where Jesus says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So there's a sense of being concise right. in your prayer and, and, and then uh, praying according to this uh, model or mm-hmm. you know, of prayer as well. So. We also have to know what the words mean. Because, I mean, if you take those who just do this by rote, right. Do they even know what they're saying? And essentially, you might as well just be babbling <coughs> nonsense syllables if you're just repeating it and not, well, what is it going to come? There has to be some exposition of this so that when someone prays it, oh, that's what we're praying for. We have to actually understand it. There's going to be some teaching. It's a, it is a model. You know, obviously, it's not, you don't have to use these exact words every single time. Right. But it has to be understood. Otherwise, it's it's just nonsense. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, thinking from the classical model of education, like we do a lot of uh, in the grammar stage, we do a lot of memorization of, of rote facts and information, right? Uh, but the idea is that the children grow up into an understanding of what they've memorized, right? So we're, there's nothing nothing wrong with having a rote memorization of the Lord's Prayer and reciting it regularly. Um, praying it as a family and just that form, things like that. Nothing wrong with that, but I, I absolutely agree with what everybody's saying here. That we have to have a, a, another level of understanding of it as well. Uh, that is, teach us about the kinds of things that we ought to be praying about, how we ought to address God, that He is our corporate Father, right? You know, there's a lot of things to think about there. Uh, okay, good. And. Has the attitude of, it's supposed to be crowd, sorry for the typo. Has the attitude of the crowd changed towards Jesus in this chapter? Uh, explain your answer. So when I say crowd here, what I'm talking about is not just the Pharisees, but, but the large amount of people that are following around everywhere. Has their attitude seemed to have changed in this chapter? What do you think? First of all, it makes a lot more sense than crowd. Yeah, really I apologize like, for the typo. <laughs> it was just close enough typo that we were like, maybe this means something. Yeah. That we're not oh, it's getting deep on us. <laughs> Where's the crowd? <laughs> 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 they, they, they seem to be getting a little bit restless. Okay. They're, they're, they're ready for the next step. They're ready for... I, I'm kind of getting the impression here. Like... I'm taking the sword type of thing, maybe. Okay. Catching up some Romans. Okay. You might have some zealots going on in there. But, uh, I mean, like, the woman who says, blesses basically his mother, um, the woman who, who bore you, but he said, blessed brother, and those who the word of God, keep it. They're, they're just kind of like saying, we're, we're for you. It's like, no, actually, you're still missing right. the point. <laughs> well, I mean, you see, like, jumping ahead a little bit, but even in chapter 12, it talks about, you know, how they were falling and were trampling one another, but like you said, it's sort of that stirring, moving, ready for action kind of thing. Certainly, some seem like they were there for what sign is going to be next. Right. Right. I mean, this is entertaining. This is exciting. He's doing stuff we haven't seen in our lifetime. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like a show. Right. What's next? Yeah, verse 29 of Luke 11 says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. 
it seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, right? So it, there's not a, there's it, not trying to indiv- make every individual person here under this title, but there seems to be a lot of uh, ungenuine intent towards Jesus here. You know, it's, it is something like, oh, this is something to see. You know, let's go get the neighbors and go out to the carnival kind of thing, and um, they just want to see him do something else miraculous. You know. You can imagine, hey, Jesus, can you make that rock float? Let's see it, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows, right? Um, okay, good. Yeah, and I think, I think too, that when you when you compare that with the end of this chapter where he kind of gets more direct with the Pharisees and the, the scribes, um, you might be seeing in Jesus a, a decisive turn to be very clear about who he is and what he's about and that he's not going to just cater to people, right? Um, and so, you know, uh, I don't know for sure where this fits in the timeline with with John, but when he, he gives his, uh, in the Gospel of John, when he gives uh, his, uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, but I'm thinking this is probably pretty close to the same, same time period. Uh, so he, he starts being a little more provocative and making people feel uncomfortable, you know, about this time in his ministry. Because we're about to see, he's about to set his face towards Jerusalem. So he's kind of uh, (coughs) cutting to the chase at this point. All right, so let's do Luke chapter 12. Read that together. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Uh, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbiter over you. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. 
But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than they, than the birds, sorry. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do so, do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where, there, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive, receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know, or, yeah, the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-laws against daughter-in-law, and, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you'll say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Alright. So, Katie, I think you already mentioned this, but what happens, what's happening uh, due to the tremendous crowd that follow Jesus? Right, which again seems to be a heart indication of some of the people there, I think. Uh, this is not people that are zealously trying to follow the Lord. These are people that are overcome with excitement or maybe even desire to put themselves first and get closer than other people. Um, what is the leaven of the Pharisees which Jesus warns his followers to avoid? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Um, what does Jesus say we should fear? Him who after he has killed has authority to cast him. Don't be afraid of those who can just kill the body, but the one who can cast the soul in hell also. Um, what sin does Jesus say cannot be forgiven? Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. People like to talk about that a lot. Uh, what, according to Jesus, should we do rather than be anxious about our needs? Seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Good. Um, where, according to Jesus, is our heart? Our treasure. Where our treasure is. When does Jesus say that the Son of Man is coming? I don't know. Nobody knows. That's right. Forget your charts. Um. <laughs> uh, what does Jesus say is true of those to whom much is given? This, by the way, I'm sure is what inspired the great line in Spider-Man, with great responsibility, or with great power comes great responsibility. I'm sure that's what it's um, What will happen among family relationships because of Jesus? Division. Lots of division. All right. So... Turning to our logic questions, let's think about some of these ideas here. Uh, what might we infer, oh, I kind of already blew this one, but I said, what might we infer to the hearts of the people following Jesus from, from verse 1? You know, again, they seem to be there maybe for the wrong reasons. Um, number two, how are verses 4 through 7 
connected to verses 8 through 12, and what principles might we draw from Jesus' teaching here? So in verses 4 through 7, um, Jesus is, is telling them not to, not to be concerned, not to worry, like the God cares about the birds, he's going to care about them, right? And then uh, we have the, the example of the um, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit passage. So how are, these, how are these connected? Why are these abutting each other? Talking about how they're going to be taken before the synagogues and the Lord's authority. Okay. Um, I mean, they've been accused of something and they're, they're on trial basically and they could lose their life. But God's saying, don't fear them. Fear the one that can cast your soul to hell. Well, if you're denying the Holy Spirit, at that point you're saying, I'm more afraid of these people than. I am of God because the Holy Spirit is God. Okay. Anybody else have some thoughts? Oh, along with I think what Ben's going with, it's going to be there's a point where non, where Jewish Christians are going to be persecuted by Jews mm-hmm. because of believing in the Messiah. And if you see this hostility growing, it's going to get worse. And you know, it's, and you look at Paul and. Before he was converted, you know, he was quite zealous. And, and it's essentially the Jewish bin Laden. I mean, he was, he was a zealot. He was murdering people right. in the name of God. Okay. Um, I didn't specifically ask this question on here, but how do you how do you understand the idea of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit? Um, yeah, you have. I, I've talked to people who who love the Lord, who have been really anxious about that statement. Like, well, what if I, what if I did that accidentally? You know, or you know, things like that. I mean, how do you, how do you understand uh, this issue? Could be. Uh, it's me speculating, okay. not uh, not responding to the general call of the Holy Spirit on your life. That you're a sinner that you need to repent. Okay. Yeah, certainly, certainly uh, a valid interpretation. I think of this is to understand that if you're rejecting the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting the one who witnesses to Christ as Savior. Uh, so it's it's kind of like saying. Um, what's the one sin you can never be forgiven for? The one of not seeking forgiveness for your sins. You know, I mean, put in a certain sense. So that's at least, I think, a valid understanding of this. Uh, I know another pastor friend of mine uh, thinks that this was actually only a sin that you could have committed in that day and in that moment uh, when the Holy Spirit was specifically testifying the power of Christ in that moment. So I don't know. I mean, so, but... But I think, regardless, what we don't need to fear is the idea that if you love Jesus, you're not you're not in constant danger of committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or anything, right? But do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I was going to say one. I mean, one thing to think about is even in the early church, there were those who, under persecution, did deny Christ mm-hmm. to save their life, and then later they repented right. of that sin, and the church restored them. Right. You know, so it's not. 
like, whoops, I said the wrong word, or, right. you know. Um, and, and that doesn't mean we should take our uh, confession of Christ lightly, right. you know, but at the same time, like you said, it's not something where we're just going to, you know. Well, and he says in verse aside. 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Yeah. So it's an interesting, you know, he's yeah. making a distinction there, but... Uh, I don't, I don't pretend I have a perfect understanding of this, so that's why I just opened it up for discussion. Any other thoughts on I think it tends to be more, not maybe more, but a purposeful denial of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe, you know, determined to um, bring those down with you. <laughs> you know, you're denying the Holy Spirit. Consciously making that effort. Right. Well, we we could connect this back to the last chapter with, um, you know, Jesus saying again, um, "You think that I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons, right? You're 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 taking the Holy Spirit's power, and you are actually saying this is the power of the devil, right? Um, So this may be a correlation that we need to consider as well. Okay. when we look at uh, verses 35 through 48, what should our attitude be, our attitude and actions be, concerning the coming of the Lord? Okay. Happen at any time. Yeah. You don't know the time, but it can happen. Yeah. Kind of like the day of our death. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Right. But you, got, you can't predict it. You can't put it on the Yeah. It's once you say it's going to happen on this day, you're going to be wrong. So. Right. It, it, makes you, it makes you wonder how that's going to work out, right? Because at any given moment, isn't there somebody who's expecting it, like, right now? You know? Yeah. He's got to find that perfect window, and everybody is just like, hey, look at that. What? Jesus came. Okay. You know, I don't know. But, uh, no, I'm just a little bit, but yeah, it's 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 funny to me how many people, how many Christians are constantly trying to figure out when this is all going to happen. I mean, it's an obsession for some Christians to try to watch the news and chart out things in Revelation or something like that, you know, and and uh, every time Jesus addresses this issue, he makes abundantly clear that you can't really know for sure. In fact, he makes the really audacious statement that not even the Son of Man knows, but only the Father who's in heaven knows, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's it's uh, uh, we need to be prepared at all times. We need to be expectant, looking forward excitedly to it, right? I think we should have that, that attitude of desire that it would come in our day, you know? And we ought to expect that at any moment it could be, and so may we be found faithfully serving him, in the moment, right? Um, if, he, if he did come back tomorrow or next week or five minutes from now, are we living our lives before the Lord in the way that we would want to be found? You know, uh, but I think that's I think that's a pretty good diagnostic question, if, if that makes sense. You know, I think it's a pretty good opportunity for us to say, if Jesus came back today, would I be happy about the way He finds me? in relationship to him right now? And if the answer is no, you say, well, why not? What, what's, what is it about my relationship with the Lord that really needs to be better, needs to be closer, needs to be whatever, you know? 
So I, I think it serves as a pretty good diagnostic question, you know, of the of the health of our walk with the Lord. How would we want Him to find us when He comes, and, and what steps should we take to to get ourselves there? Um, what does Jesus mean by making a distinction in punishment between the different unfaithful servants when the master comes home? Why are they treated differently, and how does this relate to us? I think of the passage where it says not everyone should be a teacher because they are going to be, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but basically judged more hard than yes. um, if you're if you're going to take take that greater responsibility, uh, that greater power, um, no, <coughs> God is, does expect more of you um, in a way, um, and in some ways it's kind of like we were talking about this on Friday, a little bit with the person with a stronger conscience versus the person with the weaker conscience. Um, if you're intentionally causing your brother to sin who has a weaker conscience, then you're at you're at guilt there for causing that brother to stumble, um, and you're at fault there. Uh, and I think that's that would be kind of related to this too. If you uh, that that is your sin. Now we're all saved. All of our sins have been paid. For those who Christ has called, we're all saved. Uh, given uh, salvation to him. But then there's also, going back to earlier, what we see in Luke, um, Sodom and Gomorrah won't be judged as harshly in some ways as, uh, right. I don't remember the name of whatever city was that. Yeah. Seems to be degrees of punishment in hell. Yeah. Uh, I know some people think it's all even and all rewards are the same and all is, well, no. Yeah. This is clear. There are other passages too. Those are revealed more in the first one than those servant who knew his master's will. If you think of the Pharisees, who have all this revelation, read the prophets, the lawyers who could parse out, you know, verses and come up with all sorts of strange traditions and things. And their their punishment if they don't repent is far worse than the Gentile living off on the other side of the world. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus is the, the dividing line, right, between salvation and, and not having salvation. So coming to trust and have faith in Christ is that all-important distinction. But I, I definitely uh, think the Scripture makes very clear that there are distinctions between uh, how bad it will be for those who are apart from Christ, depending upon how much revelation that they received of Him, right? And how much responsibility they had to believe in light of that re- revelation, right? And so, although Romans 1 and other places make very clear that everybody has a general revelation of God to which they are accountable to, that they ought to see the stars, they ought to see the amazingness of one another, even, right? And say, wow, there must be a creator behind all this whom I should seek out and worship. And, um, you know, but. So everybody's accountable. Nobody, there are no, you know, tribesmen somewhere, you know, that haven't heard and they get to go to heaven just because they haven't heard. And that's a, a popular idea amongst some Christians, you know, which I always say that why send missionaries if you think that, right? Um, but anyway, but how it is better in a sense 
for the, the, the tribesman who's never heard a lick about the name of Jesus, right, then the evangelical, well, or the person in the evangelical church, right, who sat there and heard the gospel every Sunday and, and had Bible studies all around him and, and, and never really trusted Christ. It is worse for that person. It absolutely is. And it's certainly worse for the Pharisees looking at God face to face in the person of Christ and rejecting him, right, than it would be for almost anybody else. Again, you know, the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah are being hung on their neck because they're rejecting the Messiah right in front of them. Um, and likewise, on the other side of the divide, so not only are there degrees of punishment, I think, in hell, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, you see degrees of reward, right, in heaven. Um, and so what that looks like is rather vague also, I think, but it's a reality. Um, that, that God rewards faithfulness. Um, and not, not every believer will be rewarded in the same way according to their faithfulness. So, you know, when you talk about this discussion, it's like, well, that sounds like works. Well, it's not works when it comes to salvation, right? We are grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, salvation, right? That's all there is to it. But what you do matters, right? And so, and I think God takes that seriously. Um, all right, so what is it about Jesus that causes divisions among people? It talks about how these houses will be divided against themselves. You see throughout Jesus' ministry that when he speaks the truth, some people are very hostile towards that. And when you have family where some members of the family trust in Christ and begin to follow the truth. Like, the, the members of the family that don't, they're going to be hostile towards that. They're going to be confronted with their sins, confronted with the truth, they're going to hate it, and they're going to fight against it, and it's going to, it's going to cause division in the family. Yeah, yeah and we still see this today, um, you know, whether it be from a a very secular family that doesn't think religion's worth anything, or whether it be even from contemporary Jews who come to faith in Christ, it's still a very big deal when that happens, from, from some stories I've read, you know. Uh, modern day example, typically, that you see more often is, is Muslims coming to faith in Christ, and the, the backlash that they get for that major decision, right? I mean, but yeah, in many ways, this, this continues to be a truth that, that Jesus came to divide um, I'm going to jump down because we're running out of time, but I want to jump down to the rhetoric question and, and give just a minute to that. So in Luke 12:51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Uh, however, in Luke 2:14, the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How, could, how should we reconcile these two proclamations? So on one hand, it sounds like Jesus has come to bring peace on earth, right? And on the other hand, I says, I didn't come for peace, I came to bring division. What do you think? Two groups in the, in, in Luke, it's, um, it's among those whom he is pleased. So uh-huh. That's peace among fellow believers. Those who believe in the old and you know, before Christ, after Christ. So, and there will be, because all Christians have the Holy Spirit. In the case of these families divided, you have division amongst Christians and non-Christians. So it's not the same groups in view in both yeah. cases. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah, uh, I think it's just that's a really important point to see. And, and you know, if you think about uh, uh, points that Paul makes in Ephesians and in Galatians, especially uh, how Christ has brought down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, right? He is making peace. Uh, he is he is reunifying mankind in very important ways, right? Uh, but there's this this other reality that there there is the natural man which will continue to war against uh, against the spirit. So until he comes, mm-hmm. all right. Any thoughts before we wrap up and pray? Well, I would say one thing that I found really interesting, you know, reading this as a bigger chunk, um, was that in twelve twenty two through thirty four being connected to the being ready. I was thinking about how it's interesting that oftentimes we're so consumed with our earthly concerns, either storing up those treasures or being concerned about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, and oftentimes that's why we are not ready and on guard for for Him to come. And if we would trust those to Him, we would have the time <laughs> and the uh, and the attention to focus on being ready for His coming. Um, and just never thought about those two being connected like that. Good. Yeah. Good All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Help us to hear your word this morning as Pastor Rick preaches. Pray you'd speak through him and help him to just faithfully expound your word. We thank you for um, the blessing of coming together as a church family. We ask that your spirit would indeed be in our midst. Uh, revealing more about who you are to us, that we might see you and know you and love you more. And uh, God, that you would empower us to go out to the world and share the good news. In Jesus' name, amen.